If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again this morning to the book of 1 John. This is our uh, fifth week in our study of this uh, fairly short, small uh, biblical book near the end of your Bibles, uh, near the end of the New Testament. This is a study that will probably take us uh, right up to Christmas. Uh, So we have a few more months, couple more months uh, in this great study of 1 John. You remember that John has reminded his readers and us here today Uh, First, of the Jesus that he heard, the Jesus that he saw, the Jesus that even touched, of the Jesus who is our propitiation, and we unpack that word, the Jesus who is our advocate. And it's on this gospel basis that two weeks ago when we were last in this book, John called us to a supernatural love. A supernatural love of God and of others. Love is a big deal in the letter of 1 John, in case you haven't already picked up on that. In some form or another, the word love appears 51 times in this little letter. But only once does a form of the word love appear in this letter in a context where we are told to not love something. And it's here today. This is a brief but challenging passage. I don't think it's particularly challenging to understand and to get our heads around. I hope we can easily do that. What is challenging about it is getting our hearts around it and getting our wills walking in obedience to it. But it's a fundamental passage in understanding what it means, what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so I want you uh, to listen closely as I read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your copies of God's Word. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says, picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. As many of you know, at least those of you who know something of Nate Hitchcock, uh, many of you know that I'm what is called a covenant kid. What I mean by that is simply that I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian home, and therefore, by God's grace, like many of you kids, I have grown up in the things of the Lord. That's a great blessing. It's a wonderful blessing. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But at times, being a covenant kid, growing up in the church, hearing the things in church, at times it 
could be confusing. For instance, I'd hear verses, some of you kids have heard these verses, I've heard verses from Paul's admonition to the Colossian church in Colossians 3, set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. And then the next week I might come to church and I might hear this from the Apostle Paul, written to 1 Timothy, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. We might sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into His wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And then we'd follow that up with, this is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. And so as one author who points this out and therefore whose experience is similar to mine and maybe similar to some of yours notes, what exactly are we supposed to do with the things of earth? Are they supposed to grow dim or are they supposed to shine in all that's fair? Of course, there is an answer. There is an understanding of this that that relieves the tension that we find in God's Word. And the Apostle John here in these verses seeks to begin to relieve that tension. Two truths that really just reframe these verses and the teaching that's found in these verses. Two truths for us to meditate on and to kind of hang our thoughts on this morning. The first one is this. Don't be Lord by worldliness. Don't be lured by worldliness. If we were standing outside and I said to you that a plane was coming in at two o'clock, how would you understand what I just said? Perhaps you would think that I had a relative flying into SeaTac at 2 p.m. and that I needed to head down there to pick them up. Or perhaps you would think, especially if I was looking into the sky as I said those words, that in the direction of two o'clock, there was a plane headed our way. The point of that simple illustration is that words can mean different things depending on how they are used. We know this from a variety of examples. A bat can be a wooden stick that we hit a ball with, or it can be a winged nasty flying rat. If I see a crane, perhaps I've seen a beautiful bird, or perhaps I've seen a huge mechanism lifting drywall at a construction site. You see, at the center of this passage is the word world. The word world. It's a word that's used a ton in the New Testament and particularly by the Apostle John. It's the Greek word cosmos. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16. You know that verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So let's get this straight. For God so loved the world, therefore do not love the world. Yes. 
You see, there's a variety of different ways that we can think about the word world, and we need to get this straight to understand this passage. The first use of the word world is used to describe the universe, the sum of created things. We sometimes in English, we skip the English translation altogether, and we use the Greek word, cosmos, right, to describe the entire created universe. But world can also be used to describe the earth, the dwelling place of man, seven continents, four oceans, one planet, a people populating this planet made in God's image. The cosmos, the first use of the word, includes Mars, right? We can't see Mars. God created Mars, though. But if we want to speak of what we know and experience on earth, maybe we would say the world. Then still another use of the word world in the New Testament describes the fallen world. A creation that is broken, that is groaning, that is ultimately rebellious to God, its creator. And we actually hear all three uses of this word world in the first chapter of John's gospel. In John chapter one, verse 10, he says this, he, that is Jesus, was in the world, meaning planet earth, and the world that is, all of the universe, Mars included, was made through him. Yet the world, that is, a rebellious creation, did not know him. So when we come to this passage and we're instructed not to love, what is John telling us not to love? Well, we don't just guess. He actually makes clear that John wants us as believers to not love the things that are opposed to God. A fallen and a broken world. It's this world that we must guard being lured by. And that's why I use the word worldliness is because I think we commonly use that word. Don't be lured by worldliness. Verse 16, let me read it again. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. There is the definition, or at least in part, of worldliness. John is unpacking it for us to make it clear. Take notice, it's not even so much about externals, right? It's not do this and don't do that. That's not John's focus here. It's about the heart. It's about three dispositions of the heart. And I want to run through these quickly and then circle back to them to think more deeply about how we might apply them into our lives. So let's, let's just unpack verse 16. First of all, desires of the flesh. The new International Version says the cravings of sinful man. Another way to think about it. We all, in our sinful natures, we struggle with born desires that are not from God. 
And these desires are from within. They focus on self. They don't focus on others. They don't focus on the God who created us. So the Lord told Cain at the very beginning of time, close to anyway, before he killed his brother in Genesis 4, the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And this understanding, this anthropology, this view, this theology of man is so important, is so fundamental that we as humans, we as creatures, we naturally twist things. We naturally abuse God's gifts. And think how different this is than the world around us, than the cultural air that we breathe. Hey, if it makes you happy, and if it doesn't hurt anybody else, go for it. Or, or if you were born with that desire, it's just the way you are. Walk in it. That's what our world says. Woody Allen, the well-known movie director, who I would advise looking for advice to, sums it up with this quote, the heart wants what it wants. Yes, it does. The world says the heart wants what it wants, so give it what it wants. And the Bible says, no, you must rule over it. Desires of the flesh. And then John goes on, the heart often wants what it sees, desires of the eyes. Here John brings to mind the power of our visual world, doesn't he? In Genesis 3, after the serpent casts doubt on God's word with Adam and Eve, we are told in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, she took it. In 2 Samuel 11, we just studied the life of David. David arose from his couch and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. These enticements of the eyes feeding the innate desires of the flesh unleashed a world of heartache for these servants of God. And they do the same thing for us. And then John says, pride of life. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Actually, depending on what year, this is an interesting textual note, depending on what year your ESV Bible, if you have an ESV Bible in your lap, depending on what year it was printed, your Bible may say pride in possessions instead of pride in life. You could tell there was some debate whether they should put possessions in the text and life in the footnote or other, the other way around. Again, the New National Version translates these Greek words as the boasting of what he has and does. We might literally say that this is making much of himself in life. In other words, John's trying to communicate a self-importance derived from stuff that you've accumulated. Status that you think that you've earned. 
and self-sufficiency that is born in you as a result. That's what the pride of life is all about. Don't love the world. Don't be lured by worldliness. You see, I like that word, Lord. Of course, it makes, makes me think of fishing, makes you think of fishing maybe, the feathery flies or the rubbery worms that, that promise life and satisfaction to Mr. Fish, but are ultimately revealed to be what? Fakes, lies, but only after the hook is deeply embedded. And that's the way worldliness comes at us, brothers and sisters. That's the way worldliness comes at the church. It takes good desires and it makes them demands in our hearts. It takes interests and it makes them preoccupations in our lives. It takes loves and it turns them into obsessions. You see, the sum of all created things, think of all the things that you enjoy in this life, in this world around us. Things like fall, Mount Rainier, October baseball, especially when the Dodgers lose. A good cup of coffee, a good movie. Those things are not inherently bad things. No, they've been given by a good God for his people, for his creatures to enjoy. John is not calling us to some ascetic lifestyle, but to discernment about how our hearts interact and seek to replace God even with the things around us. David Pallison, a writer, author, name familiar to some of you, said this in one of his writings, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much. Right? And that's the definition of idolatry that we've talked about in other places, making good things ultimate things. And that's what results in our hearts in things like gluttony and things like addiction. Worldliness twists good desires Luring us either to think too much about something and to obsess about it or to think differently about it. Right? And this is the cultural air that we breathe, normalizing evil and glorying in the things that are shameful, as the Bible says. And nothing's new under the sun. The vices are the same. Listen to Paul instructing the church in Rome thousands of years ago. In the first century, in Romans 13, let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you hear that? What was he talking to the church about? Sex, alcohol, relationships, how we treat one another. This is the first century, but it sounds like today. The world takes these things and it turns them from God's design. And so really what this is for us is another opportunity for gospel-grounded introspection. We've done that a couple different times, right? Grounded in the work of Christ, grounded in the favor of God for you. We now have an invitation 
to look at our lives. You've maybe checked your retirement portfolio this week. See how it's doing these days in this market. You've received your yearly physical from your doctor. You've been careful about your calorie intake this week. But have you done a soul scan in regards to your spiritual health? When was the last time you did a spiritual diagnostic? That's what John's inviting us to do a little bit. So let's do it. Desires of the flesh. Desires of the flesh. Let's talk about sexuality. Have we as a church become calloused to the world's perversion of God's good design? God's good design of sexuality in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. We're weary, right? We're weary from holding the line. But as a result of that weariness, have we become too comfortable with immodesty? Have we become too comfortable with sensuality in the things that we watch, in the music that we listen to, in the things we read, or in the things we wear? I know, brothers and sisters, that there is a concern for legalism, and rightly so. But we must not forget that in the Christian life, we are called to put some things off. We shouldn't be surprised. In fact, we should expect that we look abnormal to the culture around us in some manner, in some way. How about desires of the eyes? Let's talk about the screen. It used to just be the TV or the movie screen, but now it's also the computer. It's also the phone. It's a, it's a portal to covetousness, to materialism, among other things, telling us what to love, how to think, how to spend our time. And so let me ask you, how much time do you spend consuming media versus working on spiritual disciplines or building and nurturing relationships with unbelievers or brothers and sisters in Christ? Serving others sacrificially in some way. Oh, the desires of the eyes are powerful. And then the pride in life. Speaking of those investments that you've checked on, does outward prosperity and security appeal more to you than growth in godliness? How much effort have you put into growth in godliness lately? What dominates your mind these days? What stirs your heart? Your successes at work? Your success, the successes of your kids in their lives? Surely those things can be rejoiced in. Surely those things can be received with thanksgiving in the context of God's blessing. But is that how you're thinking of them? How about the amount of energy you put into staying healthy? Whether it be eating, whether it be exercise, staying safe, staying alive, feeling secure. You see, there's a limit to these things. There's a pridefulness in these things. There's a self-sufficiency in these things. 
that the world chases after, that the world needs, but that we don't need. Listen to this quote from a pastor, a little book I read recently. Imagine I take a blind test in which my task is to identify the genuine follower of Jesus Christ. My choices are an unregenerate individual and you. I'm given two reports detailing conversations, internet activity, manner of dress, iPod playlists, television habits, hobbies, leisure time, financial transactions, thoughts, passions, and dreams. Would I be able to tell you apart? Or have the lines between Christian and worldly conduct in your life become so indistinguishable that there really is no difference at all? I'm not advocating for some weird subculture. John's not advocating for some weird subculture, but he is advocating for a difference. For us as the people of God to not be lured by worldliness, to check our hearts, to use discernments, to examine our motivations, to not take the bait of things that are temporal because they won't last. There's something better. There's a lasting path. There's true life. And that brings us to the second thing that I want us to close on this morning, and it's this. Don't be lured by worldliness, yes. But be captivated by Jesus. Be captivated by Jesus. Jesus, of course, isn't mentioned in this passage. At least not directly but the eternal will of the Father that he walked in perfectly is. And so as we close our thinking on this, I want, us, I want you to see and believe that the call to not love the world, it's less of a prohibition and more of an invitation. Sure, there are do's and don'ts. I ask those questions to get those things prodding in your mind and in your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. We must guard against legalism, absolutely, but the Bible encourages us at the end of the day to fight desire with desire. Going back to Romans 13, that passage I read earlier, I skipped a phrase, intentionally so. In between the call to walk properly in the light or in the daylight and to make no provision of the flesh, Paul said to the Roman church, put on the Lord Jesus. That's where not loving the world begins. By putting on Christ. By fixing our eyes on Him. By being united to Him and His work. By turning our eyes, as the hymn writer wrote, to Jesus. Recognizing His beauty, His superiority over all the temporal trinkets of our world and in them. Hear this. And in them. You see, John is not telling us this in some, to do this in some abstract, ethereal manner, somehow disconnected from the stuff of earth, but actually through it. Yes, there is an otherworldly captivation that we can have of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the work of Jesus, but also a recognition here and now that as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. 
And so loving that cup of coffee or that pumpkin spice latte, relishing in a Dodger defeat, is not loving the world if you remember where those things came from and what they're for. The English author G.K. Chesterton said this, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert, before I open a book, before sketching, before boxing, before walking, before playing, before dancing. One of his contemporaries, a guy named C.S. Lewis, you've heard that name probably, he wrote a book. I've quoted from this book multiple times. I don't think I've ever quoted this passage. It's a book called The Screwtape Letters, where Uncle Screwtape, a demon, writes to Wormwood, his nephew, his prodigy, on how to deal with the enemy, who is God, and the enemy's people, us. And he says this in one of his passages in one of his letters. This is from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape says to Wormwood, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his, that is God's invention, not ours, He's a hedonist at heart. He has filled this world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. And indeed, that's the lie of the world. At his right hand, we began our service with. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So don't be lured by worldliness. Put off what needs to be discarded. Abstain from what is a perversion and be captivated by Jesus for all that Jesus has for you to enjoy in him and through him. That's the message of this passage. May God give us grace to walk in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for such a challenging passage Father, I confess, I think we all confess in some way our preoccupation with the things of this world, a preoccupation that has, maybe it hasn't been grossly deviant or grossly twisted, but it simply has kept us from more pressing more eternal, more beautiful, more satisfying, more God-honoring things. And so I pray, Father, for a revival of my heart, for a revival of our hearts as the church, that we might not get weary from holding the line, that we might clearly walk. Show us, Holy Spirit, how to walk in a way that doesn't love 
the world. But in a way that calls the world, that is, broken individuals, lost individuals, to pleasure and life beyond what they're chasing after. Oh, Father, do that work in us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.